Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. The thing about it is you don't realize it's just like walking is such a human thing to do that's in our DNA. But most of us, we don't walk that much. If we do, maybe we walk a, an hour or two hours in a day, and that's enough. When you're hiking like eight hours or six to eight hours or longer every single day for like a month or longer, I mean, like your mind, it just it changes the way you think. You know, you, you, you re- it's almost like a meditative state that you get into. And you start writing poems, you start coming up with lyrics, you start having like epiphanies you would never have sitting in front of the computer. And it really was like a life-changing experience. It's almost like a reset of sorts. It's almost like you're, you're it's almost like a, a life journey where you're going to heaven and you have this opportunity to change everything you don't like about yourself. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Dave Williams. He is a location independent serial entrepreneur and digital marketing pioneer who has founded, scaled, and exited multiple seven- and eight-figure businesses in the digital marketing space over the last 20 years. He is also an angel investor and currently advises over a dozen startup CEOs. Dave left the U.S. in 2013 to become a full-time digital nomad and travel the world with his wife, Jen. He has traveled over 50 countries and currently maintains a home base in Portugal. In 2017, Dave founded Nomad X, a platform offering digital nomads affordable medium-term accommodation options around Portugal, which recently completed a merger with Flatio. Dave is passionate about the global digital nomad movement and is currently the global ambassador and strategic advisor for Flatio, as well as a global ambassador for both Nomads Giving Back and the Digital Nomads Madeira Island Initiative. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Matt. Really appreciate you inviting me on this show. I think uh, what you're doing is awesome and super excited to be here, man. Thanks so much. Man, I think what you're doing is awesome. So I'm super excited to have you here. Let's just start off by setting the scene and talking about where we are today and the fact that you and I have agreed to make this a wine night. So let's also talk about what we're drinking. I am actually in the United States. I'm on the East Coast. 
I am currently in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina, and have just opened a bottle of Spanish red wine. This one is from the northwestern part of Spain, and it's actually made entirely from the Mencia grape, and it's really, really nice. But uh, where are you today, Dave, and what are you drinking? Yeah, I'm actually in the south of Portugal in the northwestern area of the Algarve in a small town called Arafana, which is in the Algezor area. Uh, municipality and basically it's a fisherman's town with a with a really strong surfing culture and right here on the coast of portugal so my view is basically of a national park and you know no grocery stores within at least like 15 minutes or so so i'm really like where i am i'm really out in nature and it, it was my wife thinks we're, we're geniuses now at first she wasn't so sure about living here but now with the pandemic it's worked out really well so yeah, we love it here. And I'm drinking some wine. I'm not sure it's even a good bottle of wine because whatever my wife buys, I just drink it. But this one's actually from uh, Setubal, which is a little bit south of Lisbon. I love it, man. Yeah, Portuguese wines are amazing. I think they are the most underrated wines in Europe. I love a good Portuguese wine. One of my favorite parts about coming to Portugal, I've been there a few times. I've spent a few months in Portugal over the last six or so years. And every time I come, it's just amazing. But I would love for you to share a little bit about how you chose Portugal, of all places, to have your base. And what are the things that you love about Portugal? I know you're in the Algarve right now. You also spent a lot of time in Lisbon. For folks that haven't been to Portugal, let's say. What are some of the things that you really love and, and why you decided to make that a base? Yeah, well, actually, the last company I had was a New York-based company. We sold the company in 2012. And then in 2013, my wife and I did a trip around the world for about a year. That year turned into about four years, and we got a chance to visit all sorts of places throughout the world. And, and on that journey, we were actually doing some hiking up in the northern part of Spain. So maybe I drank some of that wine that you're having because I was. we hiked the Camino de Santiago. And at the end of the journey, we figured we were close to Portugal. We'd never been to Portugal before. So we actually just walked through the northern part of Portugal from the northernmost part in Camina all the way down to Porto, which took us about a week or so. And so that was our first exposure to Portugal. And we just fell in love with it after that. And we came back. We've been to Porto. We went spent some time in Lisbon. And then there's an amazing hike down here in the south uh, that we did, which is called the Fisherman's Trail. It's all along the cliffs right along the coastline. Super beautiful. And we ended up coming home. We were living in Atlanta for a long time. That's where our home base was. We've lived in New York City. We've lived in Atlanta. We went back to Atlanta. We were on a hike in Atlanta. We're like, we need to move to Portugal. So we sold our house in like two weeks. And then just started the process to move here and get our visa. And we basically bought real estate. And we're getting the visa that way. Although we also started a company here as well. So we just fell in love with it. We think Portugal is an amazing place. It's very affordable. So it's, it's great if you're trying to save on the expenses a bit. And not just the affordability, but it's like super beautiful. The food is amazing. The seafood is just like to die for. The people are very chill, super nice. They all, most of the people speak English very well. So being an American, my my language skills, even my English isn't so good. <laughs> I'm just, I'm lucky that they speak English here. And we love Spain. Like Spain was one of the top places that we enjoyed too. We were thinking about moving to Spain. But once we came to Portugal, it kind of, just being the proximity of the location just along the coast here, the weather we think is super nice. And then we also love Morocco so much. So this part of the world is a place that we just fell in love with. And then the winters, we, we've spent the winter in Chamonix a couple of years. And we just love snowboarding and skiing. So in the winters, we try and get away for a few months and just nomad in the snow and do a bunch of snowboarding and you know go to places that our friends want to go to. Because we, we realized <laughs> when we were at home, we never see our friends because they're so busy working. But now that we're in a really cool location, everyone wants to come visit us. It worked out great. <laughs> 
That's amazing. Yeah, you are a lifestyle designer extraordinaire. And I want to start by going all the way back, though, and understand the journey to how you got where you are today. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up? And as you were growing up, I'm curious both, you know, when you think back, what were your entrepreneurial tendencies? And also, if you had any interest in international world travel as well, you know, as you were growing up and and where you trace, you know, kind of both of those lineages. Nothing too exciting to write home about because I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, which is basically about 30, 40 minutes south of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right near New Jersey and right near Baltimore, Maryland, a very conservative town. So I grew up, uh, my father was an attorney. So I grew up in a fairly conservative household. I really loved Wilmington, Delaware. I thought it was a great place, but it wasn't a place that I wanted to spend the rest of my life. So yeah, I went away to college in Virginia for four years at a school at Washington and Lee. I came home, did some accounting work. Price Waterhouse. I was a CPA for a few years. It wasn't something I wanted to do forever. So I ended up going to grad school and that's what brought me down to Atlanta. But yeah, I think I've been an entrepreneur really my whole life because I, I started uh, the first company that I started, although it wasn't an incorporated company. So with about three or four of my friends, we started a lawn maintenance business when we were first grade. And then it was always just, you know, selling things or even, you know, on the school trips on the bus, we were renting out those little video game console consoles. The people are selling candy, you know, at school, whatever it might be, or mowing lawns, or I had a window washing business in college. This is all like pre-technology back, you know, because I graduated from college back in 1993, which seems like yesterday for me, but I know it was quite some time ago. And then I graduated from grad school back in 97. I've been in the early stages of the internet industry, kind of seeing the whole thing take off from where we really didn't have much of anything to where, you know, 97, 98, things were really starting to heat up with the dot-com. You know, my wife and I, we, you know, this is after a couple glasses of wine here, but I, I've removed a lot of this from my resume because I, you know, I've got some things. I also helped my dad start his, my dad has, was a lawyer and he started an corporation business in Delaware. And my first internet experience was actually helping him launch his business on the internet, which is called Inc. Now and turned it into a really, really successful business. He said it was like the minnow that swallowed the whale. I was the owner of a nightclub. I met my wife in this nightclub in Atlanta, Georgia. That's like the top, it was rated like top 10 nightclub in the US at one point. And we met there and we just said like, I thought it was amazing. My buddy ended up buying this nightclub and, and we ended up investing in it. And this was back in like 2003. So I have a lot of misspent evenings at the nightclub. And I, I would bring a lot of my, you know, we, we'd have like Paul Van Dyke, Armin Van Buren, David Guetta, you know, all the big names above and beyond have played there. I even, after I sold my first company, I was helping them on the promotion side because I thought like, I'll just hire the DJs. How hard is that? But I, I was good at hiring the DJs to get him in there. I wasn't very good at getting him home. <laughs> but it was like, and then that was actually what got me into the Facebook was actually the work I was doing at the nightclub because I realized at the time everything was MySpace. I had hired a bunch of interns and they were all high school interns. And I was thinking they're going to help me out with our whole MySpace strategy. And they're like, Dave, we're not on MySpace. We're all on Facebook. I was like, what do you mean you're on Facebook? <laughs> And so then I started really studying Facebook. We used Facebook for the nightclub. Yeah, I could show you these pictures. Like if you look up Opera Nightclub, like Armin Van Buren in Atlanta, like 2009, for example, like the place is just packed. I mean, this is before smartphones. And all of it is because of Facebook. And that's really what got me started with this whole thing. I just like to follow my passions. Like if there's something that I feel a strong connection to, that's what I'm going to go after, you know, whatever it might be. So I try to like, really, really like look out for opportunities that I feel like I really connect with, whether that's in my marital life or whether that's in my business life or my social life. Like that's, I try to be very sort of a little bit impulsive from that perspective. 
Yeah, man, you were one of the OGs in terms of the internet digital marketing entrepreneurship space. I mean, in the 90s, right as the internet was, you know, becoming a mainstream thing. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of what you saw and then what you did to get in on, you know, the business side and start building your your businesses all the way back then? Yeah, sure thing. Well, I'd gone down to, as I mentioned to you, I'd moved down to Atlanta to do an MBA program at Emory. And it was actually just a one-year MBA program, which my brother said was like going to beauty school. He wouldn't come to my graduation because he said, you only went to school for a year. <laughs> I'm not coming down for that. But it turned out to be one of the best things that I had done because it was 96, 97. The internet was just getting started. I think Amazon got started in 94, 95, went public. I think it was in 97. So I spent a lot of my... I, just, I had met a guy when I was in, in grad school and he, he, he had come from uh, San Francisco and he was involved a lot in the tech industry and had seen a lot of what was going on with the dot-coms. And all it took was just for him to show me one graph and just to see how fast the internet was growing. And then I basically just focused all of my studies on internet companies. I spent a lot of time studying Amazon.com, actually. So I did a few different case studies. I even did like a, a thesis at the end of my program all about Amazon and their model. Unfortunately, I should have invested in the company too. But, you know, but I, I really saw like, you know, this, I really love the idea of e-commerce because like having the accounting background. Kind of connecting the idea of building an online brand that could be fully digital from acquisition all the way through to purchase to retention and that was the idea of my first company which i called 360 interactive which got shortened to 360i uh, but yeah we saw companies like yahoo in the early stages um you know yahoo was first getting started so as more of a directory engine uh, we saw google as they started to integrate within the yahoo directory so we had you know we were one of the first companies in the u.s first ad agencies in the u.s to buy ads from Google when they first got started. So we were really early on a lot of things. Even though we were buying pay-per-click ads back in 98 for one set per click, for example. So you know, we were very early. Even one of the early companies that Google had copied, this company called GoTo.com, which the name changed to Overture and then it got acquired by Yahoo. And eventually Google copied their technology but just added a click-through rate algorithm to it. But we even got like GoTo went public. We even got access to their IPO shares because we were such an early partner in their business. But we were we were on very, very early in the whole thing. And for me, it was more about me not having to go back to work in an accounting firm or not have to wear a suit again. I had, when I was in grad school, it was really nice. I had this one professor, Ben Kaczynski, and he was he had been a professor at Harvard. He had moved down to Emory. And he, he always said, you'll hear me now, believe me later. And he really believed in studying the past to predict the future. So I was looking at a lot of these businesses, really spending a lot of time studying the industry. And it gave me like a really good perspective. So I think for me, I've almost got like a crystal ball. Like maybe that's my magical. If I've got a capability, if I, you know, I have a very good idea of being able to see things kind of into the future or trends that are happening. And it's just a matter of executing on them. So I, you know, I got really passionate about the dot-com space. And I saw at the time so many businesses were building websites. So in the early days, everyone was building a website, but no one was really spending much time marketing it. So they're building kind of this cost center. And I was like, let's turn it into a revenue center. And that's where we came up with this idea of like starting 360i to help optimize the websites, buy banner ads. And then eventually we built a technology uh, through a partner we had called, it was a company called uh, Ignition One, uh, which was basically a, a platform to optimize ads across Google and Yahoo and Microsoft in the early days. And we even built an algorithm to understand how the Google uh, search was deciding which listings were getting in each position and then optimizing it like you would a, a portfolio, like an asset portfolio. So really deciding which position, how much you should pay to optimize the spend against the overall return. 
And we sold that business in like 2005. So we, we, we went through the whole dot-com explosion where everything was like going super well to the point where everyone lost their jobs. And we were kind of like the last man standing. So at the end of the day, when like 2002 came around, all of my friends had lost their jobs. All of our competitors were out of business. And it wasn't like we were the best company in the early days. Yes, we were growing fast and we were like on the move. It was a bootstrap company, but coming off of that and then with the refocus around search and the, and the surgence of, with the uh, the surge of Google, like we were, we ended up being just super well positioned. So yeah, the, the whole dot-com period was a really exciting time. Like I went to a bunch of the dot-com parties. I went to these rooftop parties out in San Francisco. You know, we even got invited to fly down to the Bahamas. You know, it was just a, it was a completely wild time. But that's like built the foundation for how I like to run businesses a bit because I like to bring that dot com style into the companies that I start for better or worse, I guess. <laughs> and so, what was your next move after that? Where did your entrepreneurial sort of trajectory take you from there? Yeah, so we sold the company in 2005. Um, having been through the whole dot com cycle, we're like, okay, we don't want to go through this again. So, once the company started doing well, I think we we're up around 5 million or so in revenue. And with like 50 or so people, you know, maybe 45 or 50 people. Yeah, we, so we sold the company to a firm based in New York City. We had a really nice exit. They actually ended up selling the company again to a firm based in Japan. It didn't work out for whatever reasons. So we ended up buying the company back in 2007. Was when I, that's when I exited the company. So my wife and I, once we exited, we traveled the world for about a year. Um, and then that company ended up doing very well. They, they ended up selling the company again. I was an investor, but not the main owner this time. And they ended up selling it for about 400 million. The company today has over a thousand employees in the U.S. It's considered one of the top 10 digital agencies in the United States. And now it's, it's owned by a holding company called Dentsu out of Japan. So they've made it their main digital brand in the U.S. And then the te technology business we had started Search Ignite. I think they manage over like $2 billion in ad spend on the search engine. So they, those, those were actually my most successful businesses in terms of actually like existing today and still, still happening. So I like had this early run on the search space. My only mistake was not investing by the money I got out of it into Google in 2005, which I, I probably wouldn't be on this show right now if I did that. But I did very well. You know, most of the money I've made has just been on my own ventures and selling the ventures. But yeah, we returned. I met this amazing guy back in 2007, 2008, and he was one of the first early developers on the API platform for Facebook, right when they were launching the apps on the platform. And so he he got early in there and he was like the number three developer in terms of like downloads across everything. I mean, this is including like the, the developers like RockU and Zynga and all these big players. He was number three on the list. And I was going to join his company and help him get kind of orient more around the ad space because that was my background. But anyway, he sold the company. So we got inspired and we started, a, instead of doing search, we decided, okay, we're going to focus. We're going to do social. And instead of focusing on acquisitions, we're going to focus on engagement. And we were one of Facebook's first five uh, global API partners in the world. And we built a technology on top of their platform and started basically optimizing ads and licensing our technology to agencies. That business was based out of New York City, but we had offices multiple places all throughout the world. So that one we sold in 2012 to Gannett. It was a big Fortune 500 business. And that one, uh, unfortunately, that business is no longer around, but it was a bigger exit for me than the previous one. And that's the one that really started this whole journey for me. And, and I've got to, you know, I love digital. I love digital marketing. And I just, I kind of see the nomads today and a lot of them like remind me of myself back in the early days. But yeah, in terms of travel, I know you're asking about travel. You know, 
I, you know, I kind of grew up and I was in a small town in Delaware and we did some traveling, but nothing like you know what I do today. My wife's a big traveler and she's from Peru, from Lima, Peru. So once I met my wife, she was the one that really inspired a lot of the travel. So I, I look at myself more like her Sherpa than anything else. So I don't want to tell you I'm something that I'm not, but I do love traveling. She got me into it. She's very adventurous. But if it weren't for her, I'd probably still be back in Atlanta, Georgia, (laughs) running the search marketing company. That's amazing. Well, I definitely want to talk to you about some of your travel experiences because you have done some really, really epic bucket lists. Let me, first of all, though, I'm really actually curious because, you know, you've done long-term, full-time world travel with your spouse. And I want to ask you just for tips about doing that with a partner and any reflections that you have or advice that you have, because that's very different. (laughs) I mean, it's very different from solo travel. And it's also very different from just like living in one place where you go off to your job, then you come back and like, it's a very different experience. So I'd love to just hear sort of your reflections and any tips you have for, you know, partners that may want to consider traveling full-time long-term together. Yeah. We've been married now for almost like 18 years, I think. June is gonna be like 18 years. So I've been, we've been together for a long time. And so we've done a lot of traveling together. We've, we've started businesses together. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not so easy all the time, I would say. But generally, I would say for me, it's my preferred way of travel. Like, you know, we get along really well. We love adventures. My wife's very social. so She makes friends very easily. Um, and then she likes to have a good time. You know, we like to go out and party and we like to meet people that are social. I mean, obviously we've got work that needs to get done too, but you know, we like to keep a really nice balance. So yeah, it's, it's been a really great experience. I mean, the thing is you are around each other all the time and you know, that can be tough if you're having some disagreements or who knows what, but I think it's just a matter of like figuring out like, what is it that, what is your role? And then kind of what is her role? What is she good at? What are you good at? And so like we have a really nice balance where she takes care of some things, I take care of other things. We try not to cross paths too much because it's like she likes to do things more individually. There's not as much like what I like to play tennis, for example, and she doesn't like to play doubles tennis too much. You know, she likes singles, whereas I like doubles, you know, so it's like <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys have done some absolutely epic stuff and you had a number of experiences that I have not yet had that I want to ask you about. For one, you have rafted the Zambezi River and I want to hear about this. And for folks that don't know, the Zambezi River runs through a number of sub-Saharan African countries, including running right beneath Victoria Falls on the border of Zambia and Zimbabwe. And it is considered to be, by many, the best whitewater rafting in the world. And it goes up to class five rapids and all that kind of stuff. So I would love to hear what your experience was like doing that. Mm. Yeah. So when we travel, generally, we like to try and do some sort of epic adventure on the travel. And that usually becomes the focus of the travel. So we select the places we want to go to really based on that adventure. And then we kind of build our lifestyles around it. Uh, this was actually right after we had sold the last company. And before we went there, we had spent actually two months in Ibiza. I'd always, I'd always wanted to go to Ibiza, but I didn't want to do it for three days. We, spent, <laughs> we rented a villa there for two months. But after this was over, one of my buddies reached out to me that I was friends with from the West Coast of the US. And he runs a business that's called Southern Explorations is the name of it. But he does uh, trips all through South America. And I'd met him on a trip that we had done to the Galapagos back in like 2005. And he just became a really good friend of ours. And he's got all these super adventurous friends. I mean, much more adventurous and outdoorsy than I am. 
but we're really good friends and he, I think he thinks my wife's really cool. So he, he contacted us and said, listen, you know, we're doing this. He, he was kayaking the Zambezi. So he's like, I'm going there to kayak it with my friends, but there's also going to be some rafter. There's going to be a raft, a couple rafting boats. And would you guys like to come along with us? And I was like, hell yeah, this sounds like amazing. Like, I don't really know anything about rafting. I mean, I've done a little bit of rafting. Usually when I do it, it's just on holiday someplace that I, I'm totally unqualified to raft. But it was like a super incredible experience. And to start the trip off, yeah, I did the uh, bungee jump off of the uh, the bridge there. And it was like an amazing experience to kind of start the whole journey. Because I was like, I think at the beginning of these trips, you just have to do something like super epic just to get yourself in that mindset, you know, for this trip. And so I was like, okay, this is like, I'm jumping off this bridge. And it was like, that was kind of the start of the trip. And then the rafting experience was amazing because I think it was like three or four days, maybe a little bit longer. But we basically camped out along the way. And I mean, there's crocodiles in there. There's uh, hippos. There's like, you got to be careful because once you bounce out of the raft, it's like, I mean, you, you, you can die. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we had maybe there was one rapid we had to pass because it was just too, too gnarly. But we did get bounced out of the raft a couple of times. And it's, you know, you kind of feel like it's a near death experience. <laughs> but, but, you know, everyone survived and it was a lot of fun. So. I would highly recommend it if anyone gets a chance to do it. It is a little scary. It's intimidating if you watch the videos on YouTube, but you just get out there and it's like a life-changing kind of experience. So I like being an entrepreneur. I like to kind of push myself to the limits. I like to be out on the edge. And so, you know, I'm willing to kind of take risks. Obviously, I don't want to die in the process. I'm not, I'm not going to do like the crazy stuff in a wingsuit or something, but you know, and I'm not, I'm not into like climbing with ropes, but you know, as long as I have my feet underneath me, generally I'm, I'm up for it. Well, speaking of climbing, one of the other things that you've done that I have not yet done is you have hiked Mount Kilimanjaro. And I've been to Tanzania, but I have not done Kilimanjaro. And just also for folks that are not aware, Kilimanjaro is the highest single freestanding mountain in the world. And so can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah, so that one was back in, um, let's see, this was, uh, I think it was 2008. So the year before that, I really focused on my health a lot, like where I was, I was starting to run half marathons. I was starting to run marathons. I was like, I'd even signed up. I even did a couple, I think of the ultra, nothing major, but maybe it was like 30 miles or so. Um, so I was getting in good shape. And then I saw this trip um, to go hike to Kilimanjaro. And I thought, wow, this is the time to do it. I'm in great shape. I just sold my last company. I've had some time on my hands. And so my wife and I were like, let's go ahead and do this, not knowing anything. Because I before this, I didn't even know what my tallest peak was before this. Like when I got on the trip and we arrived, I just like, I was hiking mountains in Georgia to prepare for it. So really, I don't think I was very prepared other than I'd just been training a lot. I was doing some training in boxing and Muay Thai. So my, you know, I was, I was in, I was in the best shape of my life, you know, this time period. But yeah, we went there and it's just an amazing experience. It was really, really cool because it's like, I think you go through five different climactic zones and like you said it's the largest freestanding mountain whereas like in everest for example you see kind of the tip of everest but it's just, all the mountains are so large you already at such a high elevation to begin with but when you fly out there and i'm sure you saw we fly in on the airplane uh, you can really see the mountain just coming up out of the out of the clouds and it just keeps going and going and you're like oh my god this thing is just insane like what the hell is this and when we were there, the first night we stayed over, everyone was asking, well, what's your tallest peak? And what's your tallest peak? And I was like, I had no idea. <laughs> like, even what they were talking about. But it was like my first real epic hiking adventure. And it, it kicked my ass. Like, I think the last day we were doing the summit, because you summit in the middle of the night. 
Um, you know, and my wife is super tough, but she even like started crying. You know what I mean? We were like, we thought we were going to die. It was like, what the hell are we doing up here? You know, this, is, this is insane. Uh, but once we came down, it was like one of these things where it just gives you this confidence. Like I can do anything. I can accomplish anything I want to in my life. And, you know, some people on the trip were like the super shape, super athletes. They didn't do so well. I said the people that did the best on the trip were people that came in from Colorado in the U.S. that have been training at, at high elevations. Because, you know, if you're not acclimated at the high elevation, it can be very, very difficult. But yeah, I really loved it. It was an amazing experience. I'd recommend it to anyone on your show. If you get a chance, definitely go check out Tanzania, you know, uh, climb Kilimanjaro. It's just a, it's a super experience. You, even the, you, you know, the guys that the, the Sherpas that are carrying your bags and the meals that they cook for you. And it's just, it's really phenomenal, life-changing experience, I would say. It gives you a lot of confidence in your business life too. As an entrepreneur, you're like, I can do anything that I wanted to do. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, one of the other things that you have done that I have not yet done is scuba diving at the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. And I've done scuba trips at a number of pretty epic places around the world. I've scuba dived in the Galapagos Islands and off the coast of Thailand with whale sharks and had some pretty epic scuba adventures. But the Great Barrier Reef is widely considered to be arguably the best single scuba diving experience in the world. And I would love to hear how your experience was there. Okay. Well, this one, this is another one because I'd never done scuba diving before. So my wife and I, we traveled to Australia. I think we spent like two or three months in Australia. Mostly we were up in the, the northwestern or the north uh, eastern region of the country. So we signed up. You know, we were there. We were like We were doing a lot of snorkeling and we were like, we should learn how to scuba dive. This is a place to learn how to scuba dive. So we signed up for one of these courses learned how to scuba dive. And then I was like, we need to go on an epic trip, you know, like not just go out to the reef and scuba dive for a day, but we need to like get on a boat and go for like a full week and where they do like three or four dives a day, you know? So it was like, we had just done like our learning dive where we just gotten certified. So I signed up for this trip with this guy, Mike Ball, and he was uh, in the hall of fame for scuba diving from back in like the 1960s or 70s or something. And he's been running these trips in Australia since then. And it's like a huge catamaran. And they basically take you up from uh, Cairns all the way up the northern coast of Australia. And you do like three or four dives a day. I mean, it was it was amazing. And, and the, the, one of the main guys on the boat like taught us, basically gave us advanced training so we could dive deeper. We, we learned, we got the nitrous training. We got the, you know, the evening dives. We did all of the, I think we did like 24, 25 dives over the week. I'd say the most epic dive uh, was we did a shark feeding where it was almost in this like coral amphitheater theater where we're down below and our backs are against the, uh, the coral reef. And the guy had this bucket of just like fish heads and stuff. And there were, there must've been like 30, 40 sharks circling around. And he was like, it was just like mind blowing. The trip was broken into two parts. So there was one group that came for the first half, another group, the second half, and some people stayed the whole time. But yeah, we really, really loved it. It was like, uh, that was another, amazing experience. So, for, you know, for us, we're just kind of push the boundaries and, and also try and do things we haven't done before. So for me, it's like, okay, I, I used to play a ton of tennis growing up. I kind of grew up at the country club. I hate to say that, but my, my mom would just drop me off and I played tennis like every single day because everything else to do. Yeah, I think I was like my babysitter with the tennis pros. And yeah, I played a ton of tennis, but I never was really into hiking or scuba diving. But my wife and I, once we got out there, we're like, let's learn how to do this stuff. Let's diversify our skill sets a bit. And you know, now I'm actually just getting back into tennis after like 20 years of being away from it. 
But I think like, yeah, it's just like, you got to kind of go whatever that most epic thing is you can do wherever you're going. I feel like sign up for it, do it. I mean, as long as you're not going to die or something, it's definitely like, it's going to help you in your business and help you in life. I love that you have just identified these epic, legendary bucket list things to do. And just you just go travel around the world and knock them all out. Um, and speaking of hiking and trekking, you have done some of the longest and most legendary treks and hikes in the world. You mentioned at the beginning that you walked the Camino de Santiago. And I understand that you've actually done it twice. And I would love for you to share a little bit uh, and maybe even just start with just for folks that have never even heard of the Camino de Santiago, what is it? And then how was your experience there and why did you decide to do it twice? Yeah. So this was the year that we had taken, we had taken a year off. So this was like before, you know, kind of the start of our journey. Um, and we had watched a movie the way and that inspired us. So we're like, wow, that looks like an amazing hike. Let's research it a little bit. And then once we found out information, we're like, okay, we, we got to go do it. Unfortunately, the first time we couldn't do the whole thing. We actually did, I think it was the last like few hundred kilometers or so. So we've actually done it in two segments. So I don't want to misrepresent myself because I did do the, the last segment all the way to the coast. And then I've done the, the first segment and then I've hiked the, there's also, it branches all, all throughout Europe. But just so everyone knows, the Camino de Santiago, it's a very historical pilgrimage. And it's, you basically hike to this area called uh, Santiago, Spain. And it's where the remains of you know, one of Jesus's disciples, his remains are buried, supposedly. It's not 100% sure. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have been doing this uh, pilgrimage for uh, you know, thousands of years, basically. So this is something that people have been doing for a very, very long time. And you know, for a while there, it became very unpopular, where I think it was like maybe even 100 people had only done it. For a year, but I think as now people start to document it and write books about it, more people are learning about this pilgrimage. But I think, especially in this day and age, everyone's looking for meaning in their lives. And you know, what I found is, you know, when I was at home and maybe you go on a week holiday and drink a bunch of margaritas at the beach, you know, this that that can only be so fulfilling, for example. But this, and I love hiking, so I wanted to combine the two things. I thought this would be really cool to have this sort of spiritual journey plus the hiking. And then plus, I get to see a lot of Spain because you're basically walking through Spain. So it's like, you, you know, the best way I think to experience a place is by walking because when you walk into a city, it's like such a different experience than driving and rocking in in a car or something. So you're basically just hiking yeah, the whole northern coast of Spain. Back in the day, people would just walk out the back door of their house anywhere in Europe and they would walk all the way to Santiago. And a lot of times people did it. It's almost like a midlife thing. Maybe once you hit your mid 40s and you start, you have your crises where maybe someone has cancer, maybe you've lost a family member, you know, maybe you've had some big crisis. Or for me, I, you know, I sold my company or whatever it is. You know, some, everyone's got some different story. Some people are just doing it because they like to exercise. But generally, you're hiking through a super old part of Spain. You're passing through these little tiny towns. You're going through like Pamplona. You're going through these amazing. You know, Spanish towns, you get to experience, it's like a culinary journey too, because you get to really experience all the different wines and all the food in Spain. And then you're meeting people from all over the world. So it's like a connection you'll never have, uh, or it's very difficult to have with people generally, because, you know, people are going deep, you know, they're, they're telling you about, like, there was a guy that I met who was working in Africa. He owned a property, like a, he was a farmer in Africa and he got attacked by a crocodile. 
and barely survived. And when he did survive, like his wife left him, you know, he had to sell the property. There were, I don't know, he lost a lot of his wealth. And he was there hiking this community of Santiago to try and figure things out. And I met this other guy who was like a general manager for Hello Kitty <laughs> in Japan, you know, and he was kind of a midlife crisis. You know, there his brother was taking him on the journey. You know, so it was like really funny. We met all these amazing people. The thing about it is you don't realize it's just like walking is such a human thing to do that's in our DNA. But most of us, we don't walk that much. If we do, maybe we walk an hour or two hours in a day and that's enough. When you're hiking like eight hours or six to eight hours or longer every single day for like a month or longer, I mean, like your mind, it just it changes the way you think. You know, you, you, you re- it's almost like a meditative state that you get into and you start writing poems, you start coming up with lyrics, you start having like epiphanies you would never have sitting in front of the computer. And it really was like a life changing experience. It's almost like a reset of sorts. It's almost like you're, you're it's almost like a, a life journey where you're going to heaven and you have this opportunity to change everything you don't like about yourself or all the things you do like about what you've accomplished. It's a period of reflection. And so I think for anyone out there that wants to get away from things for a little bit, do a reset. This is a great thing to do because you come out of it. And I think you're almost at a, it almost elevates you in terms of, you know, you're operating in this sphere. And then afterwards you feel like you're almost like a spiritual being, (laughs) you know, it's like, like I'd start looking at people and things and having like insights that I never had before. It's like I had this connection, which was like, it's hard to really explain to anyone because unless you've experienced it, you know, it's just people think you're a little crazy. But yeah, we did it once and we thought it was so amazing. We went back and did it again. We wanted to start from the very beginning. And I want to go back again. Like, I think it's just an amazing experience to have. And I think it's just, uh, and it's super affordable. So I know for the nomads, affordability is important. But you basically get a, you get a pack, you get a nomad passport. Which is like, I don't know what they charge, maybe like 10 bucks or something, 10 euros max. And this passport gives you access to all the alberges along the way or the, you know, these, these, uh, these hostels that you can stay at for like eight euros, 10 euros a night. Um, and then they have like amazing dinners where it's like maybe eight to 10 euros for the dinner and it's all the wine you can drink. It's like soup and salad and entree and dessert. So it's like you're eating really well. You're walking all day. You're meeting these amazing people. It's just such an incredible experience. And I think most people wait too long in life. Like a lot of people wait till they're retired to do this, but it's not so easy because you, you don't have the fitness, you know, and then you're kind of missed out on this experience that you could have had 20 or 30 years before. So I think it's not just for old people. You know, I met some college students. There was a college, there was a kid I met that was a senior in high school. I totally forgot about this guy. He just reached back out to me and he told me, he's like, Dave, you totally changed my life. He's like, and I was like, who is this guy? Like, I, I, I started coming back to me, but I remember walking with him for a couple of days and I was giving him a lot of advice on these questions that he had and he was following my advice. Now he wanted to know what he should do next. You know, this is like, you know, this was like seven years ago. So I was like, oh my gosh. He's putting all this pressure on me. I don't want to mess you up too much. That's amazing, man. And I know you've done some other long treks as well. You did the Tour de Mont Blanc, which goes through Switzerland and Italy and France. Can you talk a little bit about how that one was for you? Yeah, that one was an amazing hike. And like you said, yeah, you go through three countries. I think it's a 110 kilometer hike, 110 miles or 110 kilometers. Um, it's actually at the, in August, they have uh, an ultra event there where all the top ultra athletes show up and they actually run it in like two days or something crazy or less than two days, which is insane. But it's super beautiful, man. The nature is just so beautiful. The flowers, the mountains. It was like, you know, it was reminding me a lot of just like 
God's garden is the only way I could describe it. It was just so overwhelmingly beautiful. And then obviously the hiking is intense because it's a lot of elevation gain and a lot of elevation loss, like more so than I think than any hike throughout the world. So it's, it's pretty intense. But we would stay overnight in these little, uh, either in auberge or we'd stay over in a little like inn along the way, have amazing like local cuisine. If you're in Italy, you're eating amazing Italian food. If you're in France, French food or in Switzerland, you know, so it's like, uh, it's just an incredible experience. And you can, you can carry your own bags. We actually, we, you know, we, we were kind of going VIP where they, they transported all of our luggage. So we just had little day packs, which if you, you know, if you're up for it and you don't, well, you don't want to carry all your stuff, I'd say it's definitely the way to go. Although you may not feel as manly maybe at the end of the whole adventure, but I'd say it's a much better experience because it's just, you're lighter on your feet. You can really enjoy it. And you know, we, we had an awesome time. That's awesome, man. And I know you also hiked in the Himalayas as well. So I would love to hear about your time in South Asia and what your reflections were, you know, over there. We didn't actually go all the way to base camp at Everest. We were basically just hiking to some other routes that you can do. So we, I think it was like a two week hiking experience, but yeah, it surprised me a lot because uh, I didn't realize it was going to be almost like these little paved roads that you're hiking along and then you're going through these little towns and everyone's just banging on rocks the whole time because they're building up all these little towns and there's no cars or anything. So everyone's carrying all this stuff in on their backs, which kind of disturbed me a little bit because I saw these local people and it, they, they actually have a, a lower weight limit on the animals than they do on the people. So they were carrying a lot of weight on their back. And even where they've got these straps over their head where the, their heads are like have an indentation on them. But yeah, we stopped by like monasteries and, had a chance to hike a bunch of the really nice peaks. We saw Everest from a distance and we eventually got stuck in Lukla, which is the place that you, you fly into Lukla. It's supposed to be the most dangerous airport in the world because the, the runway is at like a, <laughs> some sort of like steep angle like this. So, and then it gets very, and when it does get stormy up there, you're at a high altitude. It's like, I think it's the highest, one of the highest airports in the world. We ended up getting stuck there for about two weeks. And so fortunately we didn't have anything to go back to. So it was like, it was fine for us. But we were just hang- we, were, we were we were lost in Lukla or MIA in Lukla, as I was saying. But um, yeah, it was, that was another amazing experience. If you like high altitude hiking, I, I like it a lot because it, it puts a you know it's like a, it puts a strain on your it, you, you can't overthink things. You can't if you if you create any sort of anxiety, it hits you much faster. So that hiking at altitude is a really nice thing because you have to remain super calm. You have to hike at a nice pace. You can't overdo things. And so it's kind of like, you know, a reflection of how you should live your life to a certain extent. You know, if you start running too fast and trying to do things too quickly, sometimes that doesn't always work out. So I think hiking at altitude can be a really, really fun experience. And then uh, it's a very spiritual experience, too, because, you know, throughout the whole track here, you know, they've got these these bells that you're ringing and these these different little things you pass by and you spin them as you're going past them. And I was trying to remember the name, but we say, oh, mane. Blah blah. <laughs> have a say. We'd say every time we pass by one of these things, see, it kind of gets in your head after a while. Where it's not just a hike, but it's actually like a, it's a spiritual journey as well. And so I like that. You know, if I can combine the hiking with spirituality and try and make a connection that's deeper than just a normal vacation, like I. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes 
sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. I feel like that's like, at the end of the day, that's like a real winner for me. That's amazing. So at this point in your life, Dave, after traveling the world, going over to 50 countries, meeting folks all over the world, having these experiences, when you reflect back on all of it, how would you say that all of this travel has impacted you as a person? At this point in your life, what does travel mean to you? Hmm. Well, for me, I feel like it opens up your eyes a lot. To, obviously to the world and what's out there and you can read a lot of stuff in books but it's like not until you've experienced it really in person but i think it gives you a lot of faith and confidence in humanity because i feel like everywhere we went to it was like almost people are catering to us you know taking care of us if something went wrong people would help us so it's like no matter where you are throughout the world you know, generally i'd say the majority of the time you know people are super helpful they want to show you a great experience in their home country that was really nice. I mean, I loved all the different culinary experiences, you know, and finding places in those countries that are very uh, you know, legendary places to go visit. But I think a lot of people, they're just, the issue is for most people, I think generally like humanity is very adaptable, but if you get, if you, if you don't, if you don't have the opportunity to meet people from different places or different backgrounds or whatever it might be, I feel like the more you do that, the more you realize everyone is kind of the same. Yeah, maybe they came from a different place and maybe they speak a different language or maybe they look a little bit different. But the one thing I really connected with was, at first it was a little difficult for me because I was away from home for so long. But what I realized was that everywhere I went, what I realized is like each person that I met reminded me of someone in my life at some point. And so I eventually made this connection with these people where I was like, almost imagine in my head that they're my friend from back home. And I was like, I could connect with people very much easier that way. And I felt like I already knew the people. And once I kind of had this breakthrough, it changed my whole travel experience significantly. And I feel like now, even when I go back to the States or wherever I am, I've been around the world so I can relate to people much better because I feel like I've got a connection, maybe not with everyone, but I do have the ability to connect with people very easily. So yeah, I think it's like if you get the opportunity and now with this nomadic lifestyle, and with remote work and everything, it's an opportunity that may not have existed for everyone before, maybe something that people did in retirement or when they got out of college. But I think it's not something to be wasted, not to wait until you get to retirement or not something you just do when you graduate from college. For sure. Yeah. I also want to ask your feedback about the concept of community. And as you were traveling and as you were meeting people and as you were sort of connecting with and becoming a part of this whole digital nomad movement, I want to ask about your concept of community and how that concept maybe evolved for you over your over your travels in terms of where it is now. And I know you're involved with this Madeira Island initiative and some other things like that, which I'd love to ask you to talk about for folks that have never heard about that either. Yeah. So that was actually, it was interesting because we started traveling. That was one of the challenges we had because you know, people would meet us and be like, well, what do you do? And hard to, uh, you know, I didn't, even, I didn't even really know the concept of being a digital nomad. Now it's like, I would just tell people I'm a digital nomad. Back then it's like, 
what do I tell people? You know, it's such a strange thing that we're doing. My wife and I would always feel uncomfortable and almost not tell people our whole story because then it's like, like we have to tell people the whole story over and over again. And, you know, I don't want to make people feel bad about their situation. So it's like, okay, let's just, we're going to keep this pretty chill for the time being. So, yeah, we kind of, not to be deceptive in any way, but that was, uh, so anyway, but as we're traveling, that was one of the things I saw that was really missing was, you know, you have the short-term travelers and you have the locals. And if you're staying there for longer, for a month or two, sometimes it can be difficult to meet people like yourself. So that was kind of over the whole journey that we had from like 2013 to like 2017. I constantly was running into this where it's like, okay, what can we do to actually like do more to connect with the community or to connect with people? Like, I would love to land, like I love snowboarding or I love hiking. Like I would love to land in a place and be immediately connected with people who love snowboarding, love hiking and or love tennis or whatever it is around your passion points and basically have a community of turnkey friends that I can hang out with that know the local community and can introduce me to local people. Because for me, I want to meet a lot of the locals. I mean, yeah, I enjoy meeting the expats and the nomads and stuff. And that's all great. But for me, it's like, I want to get a chance to meet and connect with the locals. And, you know, people that are, you know, hiking on the mountains or people that are, you know, guiding snowboarding trips through back country or whatever it might be. Like, that's really for me, like when I feel like I'm like on a, on a real, like, I'm really away from things. So yeah, when we got back, I had actually met a couple that was traveling around the world as a digital nomad. And I saw a bunch of digital nomads as I was traveling. Maybe not all of them called themselves digital nomads, but I met a couple when we were down in Peru and Cusco. And uh, I just saw the challenges that they were having. You know, there, there wasn't as much of the community around the nomad scene. It was hard for them to find apartments to stay in because everything was very short term or long term. And so that was kind of the inspiration originally for the idea for Nomad X was like, you know, what can we do? to try and do more to build community uh, and not just nomad community, but nomad plus local community. So when you come back to the place, you can you know, connect easier and you feel like it's almost like home. And yeah, so that's been a big part of it. And we've always, for Nomad X, before the pandemic, we, through the summers, we had these big parties in Lisbon once a month, these rooftop parties that I put on that reminded me a lot of the rooftop parties in San Francisco back in the dot-com days. And, and, and Lisbon really didn't have anything like this before. Yeah, they have the Lisbon Digital Nomads and they put on some nice events. But we put on this amazing event once a month and I invite all the digital community and the digital nomads and bring them together. And I'd say that more women would show up than men. Everyone was dressed really nicely, really nice like interactions and people really looked forward to it. And as an outcome of this, I, mean, I hear from people all the time, like I made my business partner contact at their event. I met my significant other at that event, you know. So for me, it's like I grew up and I always like to bring the socialization or bring community into my businesses. So I've always tried to do that, whether it's, you know, throwing events. In my last business I had in New York, we'd have tons of client events, tons of client parties. You know, I want people to feel like they have a strong affiliation for the brand. And then also I want to give back a lot through these events. And you know, I can't do everything for everyone, but this is just something that I enjoy a lot myself. My wife enjoys it too. So it's like, we try and do things also that we enjoy, you know, not just all about business, but, you know, kind of like at the end of the day, if it's not a great party, but at least we had fun kind of scenario. That's awesome. Can you share a little bit more about Nomad X in general and what you were building there? Obviously, you just had your merger, of course. Congratulations on that. And then also the Madeira Island Initiative, which I know you're an ambassador of that as well. Yeah. So uh, Nomad X was started back in 2017. It was actually a, a business that I started with two other founders. And actually, the two founders were college students. And so I had this inspiration. I started a couple of companies. I'd sold the companies. I was on this next leg of my journey. Mostly, I was doing investing and advising for entrepreneurs. And I had this inspiration to actually go back to my college university and spend three months there. 
And so I rented this house, like this house, which I think was probably mostly like student housing, but I rented this house and we rented the furniture and we, the, the professors didn't even know that we were coming in or anything. We just kind of like went there and decided like, we were, we're going to do this, you know? And I wanted to help the students with their entrepreneurial ventures and also help them find jobs. But I, I met two of the top students at the school that were really well recognized. And you know, we decided to start the company. This was back in like 2016. We decided to do it. 2017, we launched the business. And we just saw this opportunity to have a platform for affordable housing. So we wanted to build a platform that was more built around this idea of like allowing the nomads to do it themselves, to find housing, to find it at a much lower rate than you typically find on Airbnb. Um, now, you know, now Airbnb is also get in this space as well, and they're very big. So obviously, that's a huge competitor for us. But we thought, yeah, there's a huge opportunity to focus on midterm, not long term, not short term, just midterm, and having a community built around that as well. Uh, we started the business here in Portugal. We built it up to we had like 2,000 listings on the platform. I'd say about half of those in Lisbon, a bunch of them up in Porto, but then also spread all throughout the country. We felt like, you know, having spent a lot of time here in Portugal, yeah, Lisbon's great and Porto are great, but what about? Sarah and what about Lagos and what about the islands? And so we feel like here in Portugal, yeah, the big cities are really nice, but there's so much more to offer in some of these other smaller towns. And then from a pricing perspective, it's like a fraction of the cost. If you move out of Lisbon, it's like maybe half as much. I found it to be you know, very, very challenging, but I like that aspect of it because I felt like if we can figure it out, other people aren't going to want to go after this market because it's so difficult. But if we can figure it out, and it was a challenge for me. But anyway, yeah, things kind of built up and we built the business up and then the pandemic hit. And we were kind of thinking we, our goal was really to start expanding more throughout Europe and globally. And the pandemic kind of shut us down a bit because people weren't traveling. And we connected actually through our Facebook group. We, this guy posted a note saying how great this company, flatio.com was. And I almost deleted the post, actually. It was funny because I saw this post. I was like, damn it. You know, I need to delete this post. But I was like, no, I'm not going to delete this post. I'm actually going to look up this company on the internet. I started following them. I was like, wow, this company is like, they're doing everything we wanted to do. And they had everything built out that was maybe in our product map over a year process. And I was like, okay, instead of trying to do it, both do it, let's join together. And they get our 2000 listings. They were basically in like 18 cities throughout Europe. They were they had a small presence in Portugal. So we did the merger. The merger was basically us selling them all of our listing assets. So we still own the Nomadics brand. We still own all the technology. We sold them all of our listing assets and they integrated those over the last six months. And now Portugal is actually their number one market throughout Europe. So I was like super excited about that because it's like, you know, you do these, these deals and sometimes these deals don't work out, which that's not a great outcome. So I was like super excited, like, okay, wow, this is actually a successful merger. And I like working with the guys. They're super smart internal operators and they've got a great technology team. And I think it sets a really nice foundation for us. Like we're you know, to take on an Airbnb, for example, because I feel like the product actually is more advanced than what Airbnb is offering. So I, I'm also their ambassador. So I take on the role of global ambassador, which we talked, we spoke about at the beginning. So they reached out to me and said, "There's this project going on in Madeira that we really like to be affiliated with." So I was like, "Okay, cool." You know, like I know Gonzalo. I reached out to Gonzalo, and I was like, "Well, listen, Gonzalo, he's really smart. If you guys have a housing platform affiliated with this project in Madeira." And the idea really was Gonzalo, he's a local Portuguese guy, but he's also a digital nomad and he's been traveling the world for a while. He went out to Madeira and he saw this opportunity to create a nomad village in this small little town that's basically like, it's the southernmost point of the Madeira island. It had been abandoned by the tourists. There's a lot of kind of Airbnbs there as well, and a lot of other apartments that were available. Let's turn this into a nomad village 
where we invite people from all around the world to come visit. We get we have a free co-working space. Their cultural center there was converted into a co-working space. And then they have community as well. So in the mornings, you'll find they'll have like yoga, meditation. They'll have like workouts on the beach. They'll have like swims in the evenings. There's tons of hiking going on on the island. The first month, I got, I, we, uh, we got some press for them with a local journalist that I had a relationship with here. And it was amazing. It was like something you read about in the marketing journals. But I got this, this lady wrote this article. It was the most successful article she's ever written in her whole career. The thing got picked up by like CNN, Forbes, Mir, I mean, probably over 100 journals. I think the first month they had 5,000 people express interest. They were expecting to maybe get 20 or 30 people. And they ended up with 500 <laughs> the first month. So the thing has been going really well. Madeira was ranked, I think, outside of the top 70 on the Nomad list. And we just went in to check it this last week. And now Madeira is ranked number six on the Nomad list. So it's been a like hugely successful project. And they're now they're opening up multiple other villages. So Fontal is the major city. Ponta de Sol was the original Nomad village. There's a village next to it called Calheta that's going to be a Nomad village. There's some surfing areas. There are going to be Nomad villages. Then we're planning to open up villages in Azores, even open up. And the whole idea around the village is the village is all about community. So the whole idea is to bring nomads together, to build community. If we build the community, they will come. That's kind of the idea. And that's where we think a lot of other countries are going wrong because they're basically just offering visas and stuff, but they're not providing the, the community infrastructure, which is where they're going wrong. That's what we did. And it's been successful. Really, I give all the credit to Gonzalo and Startup Madeira. They're really the leaders of the initiative. You know, I'm more just, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of tagging along and helping as much as I can, but they're they're on the ground doing all the work. I'm, I'm back in mainland at the moment. That's awesome, man. Well, I also want to try to get some of your business advice and expertise and sort of pull some of that out just, you know, for a lot of the entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast. You have built and scaled and exited multiple seven and eight figure businesses. You advise CEOs and startups around the world. And I want to just try to pull out some of your advice and expertise for the listeners, Dave. Can you start just by talking about what you think are the key leverage points that enable you to build and scale and exit a business at that eight figure level because most businesses don't get to that level. What were the biggest leverage points for you that let you get to that level and, and exit there? Yeah, I think the, the really key thing is getting into industries early. So for me, like the, the two biggest ones for me were the search industry and then the social media space. So for me, you know, I got in, we launched the business in 1998. So it was, you know, that was early days in the search space. And then we launched our social media business in 2008. So I think one is Finding an industry that you're early on, plus something where you can actually have something to contribute. Because if I were to found, found SpaceX, obviously, that's not really in my wheelhouse. I wouldn't be able to make that business successful. But I felt like I was passionate about the digital space. You know, we, we weren't building like an e-commerce platform, for example. But I think you know, just, just getting into a category where you can start a business without having to necessarily invest a lot in technology or have to make a big investment early on. I like to bootstrap companies. So all my companies have been companies that I've either started on my own with no with very little funding or this most recent one, I've been using my own funding. So everything I like to do is bootstrap. I like to do it on my own. I don't like to work with VCs or angels. It's like, I don't know what it is. That's not appealing to me because the whole idea of being an entrepreneur is I don't have to be accountable to anyone. So at the end of the day, I think 
you know, people get stuck in these jobs. They might be a little fearful of going out there on their own. But I think at the end of the day, you know, the best investment you can make is in yourself. And, you know, I think if you really put your mind to something and you really focus on it, and you're very dedicated to it and you're passionate about it, you're going to be successful. So I think you just have to believe that that's going to be the outcome. And as you're scaling these companies, Dave, can you talk about your CEO leadership style? And at this point in your career, when you reflect back on it, what, in your opinion, makes a great CEO? Yeah. So for me, I'm more like, I classify myself more as like an outside CEO. So I like to do more stuff that's like engaging, like with the community, you know, events. I like to be involved in the sales process. Like I like to go out and meet with the customers, get their feedback, and then incorporate that feedback back into the product. You know, I see some CEOs like Flat.io, the CEO, he's more of an internal CEO. He tends to really focus on the internal operations of the tech team and he's more internally focused. And I, I was reading something, I think it was Harvard Business. They say actually the internally focused CEOs tend to do better over time than the externally focused ones. But for me, I like to stir up a lot of dust. And just get out there and really try and get involved with industry organizations. So for me, I always try and get it, become all, join the board of a major industry organization or you know, get involved with things where you're kind of, you have a high profile in the industry. Like when I was in the search space, I was on, the, I was elected the board of directors for the search engine marketing professional organization, which is a global organization. I was on the board of directors for the Atlanta Interactive Marketing Association. You know, I really try and get involved with the, the early industry organizations and try and provide impact just to build my brand personally. I feel like focus is super important too, because I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs, they go too broad. It's the biggest issue that I see for most. And that's usually what I, that's my main advice. <laughs> if you come to me and you want to know like what you should do differently. I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs, they're just going too broad. They marginalize themselves and they're not creating a lot of value. You know, maybe a little value here and there, but generally they're not going to be able to close as many deals because they're not as differentiated, you know, pricing wise, maybe they can't get the price points they want because they don't have enough expertise to justify it. I think when you focus, what happens is, especially when you're an early stage company, because it's like, it might be just me and a few other people, you, know, you can't take on the world. <laughs> you got to kind of figure out what is that niche that you want to go after. And ideally a niche that you feel that you could be number one at. I know that's kind of a reach, but if you get into this niche, can you be number one in that niche or at least top three? at the end of the day, because those are the companies that really get all of the value. So as you're growing the business, continue to focus the business even more and more over time until you kind of reach that point. And then once you reach that point, that's when the company has achieved you know, a lot of value. Obviously, and growth is important. So you need to be able to scale the business as well. You know, That's what investors are looking for, or that's what buyers want. They want the brand. They want a company that's got good processes. And they want a company that's got a lot of industry recognition that they, can, they feel that they can add to their portfolio and immediately scale much bigger. And as you're scaling these companies, Dave, I know you've scaled your companies to you know over 50 plus staff. What tips do you have for attracting and hiring and retaining top talent? Yeah, it's interesting. This, this is something that I feel like has worked. I haven't done as well as I did back in the States. But for me, like I generally don't use any job boards. I'll never put out you know, job requests. For me, it's all networking. So I typically... I'll get into these industry associations. I'll go to the industry events. I'll meet a lot of the people. And then I'll generally try and hire like people that I feel like are very well recognized and have a lot of influence in the industries or you know, people that maybe I've worked with that I think are really, really good. And I'll recruit them, bring them on board. And then ideally, they start bringing in talent beneath them through their connections as well. And that's how I've built all my companies. And it, and it creates a really interesting culture because you've got people that all have these like relationships and connections 
with each other. And to the extent they're excited about the business, there's a lot of passion. And I also like to give away equity to everyone in the company. So I like to be very generous with the equity. So for me, like what I like to look at it is, is like where the employees are my business partner. You know, so I think a lot of people, let's say you start a company and you start a company with a business partner, you split up the equity, each one of you has 50%. And then you want to start giving equity away to team members, well, they might get a very, very small percentage. But for me, since I like bootstrapping, you know, I have a lot of flexibility. I'm not, you know, the board can't tell me what to do or what not to do. So generally, I like to give away equity to my top people and equity all the way down through the ranks and really motivate people through equity. I also like, you know, people aren't working out. I tend to like to try and fire people very, very quickly. So I think, you know, that, that gains you a lot of respect with your team members. If they see someone's not working out, generally the CEO is the last one to find out. But if they see that this person is not working out, it's not like a big company where you've got to give people a lot of chances. I feel like in a startup, it's like if someone doesn't work out, send them back into the minor leagues and, and you find the next person because it's like one weak link on the team can really destroy the whole business. So you have to be very, very disciplined. I've also really focused on culture. Like I would really have like strong company values and really try and build the company as a value-based company. And then I also try and do a lot of stuff within the industry, you know, like have really progressive policies on commuting, you know, like even paying people to ride their bikes to work instead of paying for parking or paying people to eat lunch at the office or you're just doing things that maybe most companies wouldn't do or having like a, like at our, on our co-work space in New York City, they had like an amazing little food bar. And we just had an account there. It's almost like being at the country club. You would come in in the morning, you'd get your breakfast there, you can eat lunch there. You know, so people aren't going out for these long lunches and coming back exhausted. They've got this like great setup at the office where they can get any coffee or drinks or anything. It's like, it's kind of like being at Google, but not being at Google because that's kind of what we're up against, you know. So we're trying to really motivate people, you know, and not have to pay people the most money. We do like to motivate them through compensation. But I think generally what I've found works well is if you hire people that are really good leading the groups, if you have good leaders in place, Generally, that'll keep people around as well. You know, they want to work for really great people. They like the idea of equity. They like the idea of being involved in a fast company. But it's challenging because the company is growing very, very quickly. And it's, it's hard to maintain all of this over time. And as entrepreneurs are increasingly building fully remote companies and scaling with fully distributed teams, do you have any additional tips for building company culture in a fully distributed company? The opportunities for businesses have changed, I think, pretty significantly. But even when I ran my last company, I was pretty much running it out of New York City, but I had people that were all spread all throughout the world. But I feel like if you want to run a remote-first company, it's really important to also build connection with the people. And I think even early on, so I think even when you first hire someone, I was listening to like Automatic, which is one of the leaders in this space. They were saying in the first month, it's almost critical to actually meet that person face-to-face. Because if you don't do that, they've just found that it's not as successful. Or you know, if you're if you're if you're going longer periods of time and not seeing each other, you know, having having get-togethers with your if maybe it's just a team that's working together, five or ten people where they get together quarterly, or at least have a company event you know, a couple times a year to bring people together. It doesn't need to be so focused on the work, but really focused on the connection, having fun together, really having like experiences together. So when you work together. You're much better at working together. I tend to like to hire people too that bring in teams that they've worked with before. You know, it's almost like starting a sports team. You know, like if I'm the owner of a sports team, you know, I don't want everyone to be on the team that's never played together before. Like I'd like to hire, I like to you know, bring in players that have worked with other players they've worked really well with that they like working with, and do that in multiple scenarios. Bring those groups together, and then you have these like almost like these pods of people that have all worked together, and you're just off to the races much faster. 
I'm curious if you can talk a little bit, Dave, about your productivity techniques and your routines and your habits and how you structure your lifestyle, right? To be as productive as you are with your business building and then also have all these amazing lifestyle components and of course your relationship and everything else, how you integrate all of that and sort of balance and create a healthy lifestyle for yourself, but that also allows you to be so productive on the business end. It's interesting because I know everyone's so focused on that these days. Everyone's looking for all these tips and tricks on how to be more productive or you know, for me, it's I'm almost the opposite. <laughs> I, I almost do things to like sabotage myself. So I don't know if I'm the best person to talk to about this. But I like for me, it's like I need to be very intense with what I'm doing. And when I'm away from it, I also need to be very intense. So my, my philosophy is more like work hard, play hard. And when I went to you know, when I went to college, that was that was pretty much what we did too. You know, we worked hard and we also like played really hard. And that's just been my philosophy in business. It's worked really well for me. The generation, this day and age, you know, like I feel like I'm a bad influence on the workers these days because everyone's so focused on productivity. Whereas for me, like I want to work really hard and I want to take the guys out and like see who's going to drop first from the shots, you know, like sink the battleship, just like have these, you know, and I know that's not the, the healthiest thing to do, but this is more of my dot com days talking to you. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's like I, I really just try and minimize all the distractions as much as possible. So I, I've sacrificed maybe a lot of things in my life and friendships and things over the years to really focus in on my business or really focus in on connecting with people. So when I was in New York with my last business, almost like all my friends were friends from work because I moved there. I'd started the company. They were either clients of ours or people in the company. We put on big events. And I realized actually I had, I'd gone too far to that side where I didn't have a good enough balance. But I think if you're willing to do it, you know, and I think a lot of times in, in these businesses and startups, it requires so much energy and so much focus that for me, I've got to like, I have to just carve things out and really just focus. And then if I need a break, like I'll go hiking for a week or two, you know, and then come back and be totally refreshed. So for me, I like to go really, really hard, like almost like running a marathon. I feel like with these businesses, I always say it's like, it's not running a marathon. It's like sprinting a marathon. And then once you're done sprinting the marathon, they're like, oh, no, you're not done yet. You need to do that one more time. <laughs> you know? So it's like the work never ends. And it's so intense. But I think you need to carve out time for yourself to go do the hike to Kilimanjaro, to go do the Tour de Mont Blanc or whatever it might be. And then you come back and you're refreshed and you have a whole new perspective on things. So Dave, let me ask you one more question and then we'll move into the lightning round and wrap this up. I want to ask you, I know that you are a global ambassador for Nomads Giving Back and Maverick Show listeners know Tarek Hulusi, who's been on the show, who founded Nomads Giving Back. And I want to ask your general take on being a socially conscious traveler and what nomads should be thinking about in that sense, in terms of making a positive social impact as they travel around and experience different parts of the world. Yeah. Well, for me, I think a lot of it can be done through events and skill shares. I think that's a huge one. Like at the moment, for example, I'm initiating a, pro a project on Madeira Island because I've been really inspired by what's going on on the blockchain and crypto and specifically around NFTs. I think NFTs could be a really interesting uh, opportunity for nomads, especially that have a lot of competency in crypto and blockchain and the NFT space to help train local communities of artists on how to actually like create an NFT, market an NFT, sell an NFT. I feel like this is really the future. So, you know, as we come into markets, we really try and educate people. Obviously, it's not all NFTs. It could be a, you know, more of an event here towards conscious entrepreneurship, whatever it might be. 
but yeah, kind of bringing people together from different backgrounds. And then I think a lot of it too is like for Nomad X, we're trying to bring people to areas that aren't necessarily the tourist areas. So we want people to have a very local experience. We want them to be able to find apartments that are very affordable in local neighborhoods where they have that local connection and they're supporting the local economy and not just going to the touristic you know, bar to buy a coffee that's like two to three times what you would typically pay. So we want to try and bring together the local community with the digital nomads. We want to offer skill shares. And I feel like that's super important. But my first project is going to be this NFT project on Madeira. And I'm hoping to build a great case study where we can train artists on how to build the NFTs and have some good success stories and them selling NFTs. And that could be a project that could be scaled to other places. What I want to do is I'm not charging for any of this stuff. It's a free time. And I try and do all the events for free and everything for free as much as I can and support it through my own efforts or my own, you know, I've got, fortunately, I've had some success so I can afford to, to give back on my own. But I think that's really where the connection happens. So as much as the locals give back to me, it could be taking me back country in Chamonix or it could be you know, hiking me through the Nepal or whatever it is. Like, I also want to try and give back. And I feel like creating a platform for that is important. And that's really what Tarek has created. Yeah. Yeah. Totally amazing. We're going to link up to Nomads Giving Back in the show notes, along with all of the other stuff that we have talked about in this episode. So folks can check out more about that and more about uh, all the other things that we have chatted about. All right, Dave, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Okay. Let's give it a shot, man. I'm not, I'm not very lightning. So. <laughs> Fortunately, I haven't smoked any weed or anything at this point, although I am like a couple glasses into the wine, but I still have a, a lot of wine left here. So maybe I'll pour myself a glass of wine before this lightning round and give it a shot, man. All right, let's do it. The lightning round. All right, what is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years that you would most recommend people check out? I was really kind of one of the first business books I read. It's very old school. It's How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And a lot of people may be aware of it. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. My dad, for example, like one of his, my dad's a lawyer. One of his clients was having major issues, like he even got banned from his whole industry association. And he told him to read this book. And then afterwards, like a few years later, he ended up being the, the president of the board. <laughs> it's a good starter book for anyone out there that just wants to get in business. It's a lot about relationships and empathy and just how to interact with people in a business setting. <laughs> Awesome. What is one travel hack that you use that you can recommend to people? As soon as you enter the airport, it's almost like you got to enter the airport thinking you've already arrived at the other destination. So almost like change your watch, change your eating habits and start transitioning to that new time zone immediately. So when you arrive, like you're already almost there. And I found actually that helps really well. Obviously, drink a lot of water. Don't, don't overindulge in food right before you get on the plane or don't drink you can get away. You know, I like to drink on the airplane. So, but if you can, like, you're definitely going to be much better off if you don't drink on the flight or drink too much the night before. So these are just little things. But it definitely, once you arrive in a new place, just to feel really good and energetic and not be super jet lagged, I feel like that's, that's a good one. Good tip. All right. Who is one person currently alive today that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with? Just you and that person for an evening of dinner and conversation. This one, I think Elon Musk would just be the first one that comes to mind. I think he's just like a total legend. He's doing some amazing work, obviously like an incredible entrepreneur and much, much smarter than, all of than I am. But I think from an entrepreneurial perspective, I think he just has an amazing perspective and the work that he's doing is not just about business, but it's, there's a higher mission to the whole thing. And I just love what he's up to and all those businesses and just 
see that is incredible. Love to talk to him. Awesome. What is one piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self, knowing everything that you know now, if you could go back in time, what would you say to 18-year-old Dave? I think when you're that young, the challenge is you don't really recognize like what it is you're really good at or not good at. I think a lot of times you take it, you take for granted the things that you're you're good at because it just comes naturally to you. So it's it's a matter of like honing in on what is it that you're really, really good at, being able to try to identify that early. And then also go after things where you have a really strong passion and interest in. I think a lot of times people get stuck just kind of, you know, following the path that their parents are telling them to follow or that their friends are following or they take the job because it's it makes more, you know, they got a great, they're going to make a bunch of money and that's what they were trying to achieve. But I think if you kind of remove all of that from the equation, just focus on the things that you're really, really good at, focus on the things where you have a lot of passion. And I think for me, connections have been very valuable. So really, really get out there in the community, sit on industry boards, go to industry events. You know, the more you put yourself out there, the more opportunities that will be presented and the willingness to work for free. Like my businesses, I've always started them and work for free. And that's the best way to learn something. It's almost like an apprenticeship. And you get a lot of great testimonials and it's a fast path to get things started. Although you don't make a lot of money in the early stages, it pays dividends on the back end. Awesome. All right, Dave, of all of the places in the world that you have now been, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you would most recommend people check out? Yeah. Well, number one on my list right now is uh, Japan. Um, And I love snowboarding. They've got some of the best powder in the world, especially up in the north in Hokkaido. So if I, if I get the chance, number one on the list, an amazing sushi and just the whole country is just incredible. We stayed in a, uh, a Buddhist temple while I was there. If you get the chance, definitely have that experience. You can even get it on Airbnb these days. So Japan is really, really nice. I love Peru as well. My wife's Peruvian. So I love Cusco and I love Machu Picchu. I think uh, Aguas Calientes, which is the base town for Machu Picchu, most people just rock in for a day. I'd say stay there for a minimum one week. And Selena has a location there. And there's a shaman that I can connect you with who has even taken us on a journey in Machu Picchu and all around Machu Picchu. And I'd say as much time as you can spend there, it's super, super magical. And then obviously here in Portugal, I'm a little biased, but this is the, the place that I chose to live. I just think Portugal is an amazing country. And I love it because I mentioned before the proximity to Spain. And Morocco, Morocco is also like top of my list, but I couldn't live there. But I feel like if you want to just have a transformative experience in a place that's like, you know, totally different from what anything you ever used to, go check out Morocco. It's gonna, it'll change your life. I know that's four, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. We'll give you four, Dave. I think it's great that you stuck Morocco in there. I agree. It's a super, super special country. I've been multiple times myself. You go to the desert, definitely. <laughs> All right, Dave, last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations or experiences you have not yet done that are the top of your list you most want to go do? Well, I haven't been to Brazil yet. So I think Brazil is really a a top spot that I want to go to. And I feel like I would love to learn how to uh, kite surf. I tried it a couple of times. I'm not very good at it, but I would love to go kite surfing in Brazil down the coastline. One of my buddies did that. So it was like for a 10 day trip just kite surfing the whole time sounds amazing that would be kind of at the top of the list i've always wanted to go um i haven't done much in eastern europe so i'm kind of excited to go check out some of these eastern european countries even places like uh, Bangska, you know like uh and even like romania for example like I'm, I'm dying to go to like transylvania and maybe go mountain biking or just it's just i've got this this picture in my head of what it might be like so maybe these aren't the top places that i would want to go to but for me at the moment the kind of top of my list is more like Central Eastern 
Europe and then maybe the down to the south of South America just to get that just to check that off the list. Awesome. All right, Dave, at this point, I want you to let people know how they can find you, how they can connect with you, how they can follow you on social media. How do you want people to come into your universe? Yeah, I think the best thing to do is I'm on LinkedIn. So you can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive there. Or you can just email me directly, dave at nomadx.com. That's really the best way to get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, we will put all of your social media handles and your email and all your contact info in the show notes. So folks can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode, and there you'll see links to everything that we discussed in this episode, as well as how to contact Dave. This was awesome, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show, brother. This was a blast. Matt, you're amazing, dude. Thank you. You really did a great interview, man. I really appreciate it. It's like I'm, I'm definitely gonna have to save this one. That's, I'll, maybe I'll send this to my family for the for the family archive. <laughs> I really appreciate it, man. <laughs> I love it, brother. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.